and welcome to the SIS Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. This is a loaded show. We've got April's Defensive Player of the Month, Chris Phillips of the Rays. He was awesome. Ryan Spielborgs of the Colorado Rockies broadcast team and MLB Network Radio reviews April, looks ahead to May. And then we dig a little deeper with SIS VP of Baseball, Bobby Scales. This will be a regular segment looking at everything from numbers to coaching to good baseball stories. Let's get it going. Rays outfielder Brett Phillips is the SIS Defensive Player of the Month for April. Baseball as fun is fun, as Brett will tell you, and no player more fun to watch defensively than Brett. Brett, hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. What an honor to be, I guess, accepting this award. <laughs> <laughs> so first question for you is the same one that we asked to Matt Chapman, Buxton, Kiermaier, all the players that we have on here. Think all the way back, as far as you can go, what's the first great defensive play that you remember making? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Okay, so we're playing in the championship. I am 10 10 years old. I'm playing center field. Bases are loaded. We're up one run. There's two outs. And we've played like six games, probably our fourth game this on a Sunday. You know how it goes with travel baseball during a weekend. Like I said, we're in the championship. Ball gets hit to left center. And I can remember for the first time in my career making a like diving catch to my left full out. But we won the game. We won the championship. And that was the deciding factor, which is really cool. And, you know, I guess from that moment on, I just loved playing the outfield. When everyone else was playing other positions, they wanted to be the shortstop or be the pitcher. I always just craved playing the outfield, wanted to play it. And I think that's a testament to who I am as a defender today because of all the reps I got as a kid when everyone else thought it was boring. I enjoyed it, right? When when you made that catch, did you do the airplane thing? You know, I might have. <laughs> <laughs> I can't I can't remember, but I, I do remember us winning and us celebrating. And you know it's funny because I talked to my travel ball coach this offseason and he actually reminded me of that story. Like, hey, you remember when you know you made that catch when we won the championship? But again, I just I, I love playing the outfield. Awesome. So we're into stats here. A fun stat on Brett. Since the start of Brett's career on a per inning basis, now he doesn't necessarily play as much as other guys, but on a per inning basis, nobody's better in defensive runs saved, and it's not close. And that goes for throws. That goes for catches. That goes for everything. So kudos on that. I'm curious because sliding, diving, and jumping is about a lot of what you do. Who taught you how to use your body to make plays like that? That's a great question. You know, I've always been athletic. I love playing soccer, football growing up. I I always tell kids, you know, I encourage them play other sports because you never know how each and one of those those sports are going to help your main sport when you decide to settle on a main sport. So I guess it's a a testament to my athleticism, to other sports of learning, you know, how my body moves, like you said, jumping, diving, all those things come up in football and in soccer and and in baseball as well. So I can't necessarily pinpoint a, a, a certain moment where I was like, oh, this is how I'm really good at doing those things. I think it's just a collective group of playing over time and getting the the experience, so to say. Does it ever hurt? Yes, it hurts really bad when you run into the wall. I, I, 2019, well, 2018, I ran into the, the wall in Cleveland. You'll have to look at the clip on that. It was early September. It might have been late August, but Jose Ramirez hits a ball over. I'm playing right field. He hits it in, in right center, and I'm, I'm running full speed, and I go up and I jump, and as I'm jumping the ball, Hits off my glove, and next thing you know, full steam, just right in the wall. That kind of that put me on the on the shelf for a half a year. But yeah, it doesn't doesn't feel good. <laughs> How do you protect yourself? Instincts, learning learning from situations like that that help you navigate around the wall. Kevin Kiermaier, we were talking about him before we started. He's one of the best around the wall defensively. As a center fielder, he has this internal clock that he speaks about where he just kind of feels the wall. It may be a little peek out of your your eye, but for the most part, you have to learn that in batting practice. He always tells me, hey, you know, deepen up a little bit and and allow yourself to get those plays where you feel the wall 
and you can kind of create that internal clock. So, you know, it's been guys like him, Alex Gordon, who have poured into me from a defensive standpoint. One of, you know, Alex with seven gold gloves, KK, he's got a platinum, he's got some gold gloves. So I've just been able to play and learn from who I believe are the best defensive outfielders to play. We talked to Adam Duval last year about studying ballparks, and it was in particular in relation to, I think, the walls in Philly in right field where the ball comes straight down or the jutting out stands in the corner. How much studying do you do of a, of a ballpark when you get to it? Yeah, so we find the zero. Every every ballpark we go to, we find straight up, right? So usually for us, I think it's like 70 or 75 feet from the wall in center. They were here in Oakland, so we just went over. It's like 75 feet from, from center. If I'm in right, it's like... 70, 70 feet, but finding where you are straight up. And then from there, navigating the the ballpark of where you're going to be running. So if I'm in center here in Oakland, you've got like weird, you know, how it goes out in center and then it, it, it comes in and just finding little things like that. And then practicing off the wall, how hard the ball is going to come off the wall you know, the grass, we're, we're taking ground balls to see if it snakes or to see if, you know, the ball's going to take a, a bad hop. Those are things that when you go into a, a city in a ballpark, you have to find out immediately the first day you go out for batting practice. These are things that you have to be conscious of and know because in the game, obviously you don't want to be caught off guard. Oakland, Boston, what are some of the other tricky ones for you? Fenway. Wrigley with the the moss and in the brick wall that's not a wall that you want to be going full speed around you kind of have to you know navigate that take off take off the gas if a ball is hit over your head what what other ones are some you know I really enjoy playing at the trough I know people have a tough time with you know the seeing and the white dome but it's an advantage if you're able to learn how to play it with with the turf you know the bounciness you see a lot of guys charging on balls and it bounces over their head so again people probably assume that all ballparks are the same especially in the outfield far from from (laughs) like so different so i would i would tell you i think of one of the few that says when people bring up the trap i love the trap plenty of good seats plenty of nice easy sight lines to everything you never have to worry about being physically uncomfortable the weather's always great inside 72 degrees every single night Exactly. So I want to walk through two plays you made this year, both from positioning to execution. They're both against the same hitter, as a matter of fact, uh, Yasmani Grandal of the White Sox. So I was hoping you could walk us through both. Well, it's two plays that I think are pretty good contrasts. One is the diving catch that you made on him uh, earlier this season. Can you walk us through it? Yeah. So I think with that play, we had Yasmani Grandal three steps back from straight up. So I was playing a little deeper off the bat. When you have a, a low line drive, my rule of thumb is keeping it. I, I like to keep the ball under like below my, my cap. So that's kind of how I gear to see if the ball's going to, you know, take off and kind of go over my head or it's going to stay, stay down and, and kind of maybe top spin. And with that one, it stayed below the, the front of my cap. So I, I, I knew that like I had to, to, to rush in and that it was going to be a top spinner. You know, I was able to, to make a good play there for Jason Adam, which is probably my favorite part of making good plays is seeing pitchers reactions. You know, they, they don't really expect it when you make a, a really cool play and to see their reaction, they're just like, Oh my gosh. Like, so, which is so cool for me. You mean, you mentioned the three steps. Is that something that you're getting off the card? So when I pull out a card, Everyone's always asking me, friends and family, like, what are you looking at on the card? That's essentially from straight up in every ballpark. We, we will have each hitter geared to certain pitchers. E- either it'll, so on our card, it'll have the starter that night, right hand, left handed pitcher. And on the back, there'll be three pitchers that are maybe have weird angles or certain pitches that we will play differently. So for instance, Yasmani Grandel back three, left two. So I take three from straight up knowing I, I gather that information before the game where straight up is at that certain stadium. And then I go back three, left three. And that's where I play. And that's where the 
the data says that Yasmani Grandal, he hits most of it. You know, if we're around that area, we'll get to most of his where his plots are or where he hits the ball. How much how much else are you using data within what you do on defense? Now with the pitch com, I know KK likes to hear what pitches are coming. So he's got one in his hat as well, which is I, you know, is an advantage for me. I've always just done it a certain way. So I don't I don't like I, I don't want to use the the pitch com right now. You know, if they if they make me or they want me to in the future, I will. But for the most part, I am, you know, I, I have my preset routine where I'm left, right, and then I'm I'm ready. And then I, I read, you know, I'm I'm just big on reading the ball off the bat. And to people who are wanting to play outfield and kind of get better at playing the outfield, I highly encourage to take batting practice serious at your position. So if you're a left left center, right fielder, whatever it is, go to that position and spend at least a group shagging really hard and like focusing on trajectory off the bat, because that's when you're going to get most of your experience. So you were talking before about making that catch. And I went and saw a catch that you made on Kiermaier in 2018 when you were not on his team. And I was wondering two things related to that. Was that like, what's the lowest point on the grass turf that you've made a catch and um, how did you not break your wrist on that one? I remember specifically that play when when you're playing in center and you've got a low liner. Usually the balls hit to center. They don't have much topspin that they would at the corners, right? So having that information from the beginning, knowing like if a ball gets hit a low liner to center, it's going to stay up for the most part. For you, it's just staying underneath the ball. And I remember sliding pretty early on that one and kind of just like, like a catcher, just like trying to scoop the ball off. So that was probably one of the lower balls to the ground that I, I've made. And the way that I run too is more, I'm like over my my body. So people think I'm going to fall over when I'm running, but it allows me to kind of stay like same eye level with the ball. And that helps me. I, it's just something I, I've always done. And it's just the way I run, but it, it allows me to feel like I'm staying eye level with the ball. It's kind of hard to explain. <laughs> okay. So from lowest to highest next day, Yasmani Grandal, we scored it. We, we actually tracked this year. We're the only company in the country that's tracking home run robberies. And we've got them 15, 16, 17, 18 years back. We scored that one, a home run robbery. Were we correct? Wow. That's <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. I think it would have gone out a hundred percent. Yeah. Thank you guys for scoring that a home run. But you know, uh, on a, on a play like that, <laughs> flip a coin, right? right? Like no one, no one expects you to rob home runs and it's just a matter of being athletic, getting to the wall and timing it up where when you jump, you're not going to get stuffed by the wall. You see a lot of times outfielders get too close to the wall. And then when they jump, they jump straight up and their body gets stuck. With those plays, you have to jump at least three feet out, three or four feet out from the wall and jump at a parallel, right? So you can get above the, the, the wall. But again, a luck and experience goes into robbing home runs. So I think you've got, I want to say you've got two. And the other one was a close one, too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Yankee um, Stadium. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So we scored that one, a home run robbery, too. Were we right? Yep. Yep. Okay. Awesome. Nice. I love it. I love it. <laughs> now, now we need you to, so seriously, there are like, and our producer, Justin can, can speak to this. We, they have like conferences and discussions about like, was it over the fence? Was the glove over the fence? All that really? stuff. Yes. Yeah, so we need you to have a no doubter. So that make, make things a little easier for them. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'll make sure that you guys the next one I rob will be sure. Like, yeah, that, that was a homer guys. Like I, I'll make sure I'll save y'all time where you don't have to have a full-on discussion. <laughs> you, you, got a, you got a panel of judges saying yes or no. Like, that just seems like too much. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So do you have a favorite defensive play by a teammate? Honestly, watching Kevin play has just been so fun the last couple of years. I think he's the best center fielder, the best outfielder in the league. And I say that because I get to watch him do things on a nightly basis that most people can't. And I don't have one in specifically that's coming to the top of my mind, but I just the way he gets to the ball, his routes, 
the how good he is around the wall, his throws. I, I just, I'm just like, wow, that is that is impressive. That is what I'm trying to do on a nightly basis. So yeah, K, KK takes takes that, that award for sure. Nice. I thought you were going to say Joey Wendell's diving play when you were pitching that essentially kept your ERA a little bit lower because he saved three <laughs> runs with a diving play. Right? Oh my goodness! Yeah, that too. You know, I, I, I. You're right. Yeah, I've, done, I've done my homework. You have done your homework. <laughs> I can see. <laughs> so your your highlight reel is amazing. We track what we call good fielding plays, and I would put your highlight reel up against anyone's. Do you have a, a an opposing player whose highlight reel you really like watching? Uh, did you see that ball that Michael Taylor robbed the other day? Yep. Holy cow! He that guy make some spectacular plays, you know, obviously we Harrison Bader with St. Louis, that dude's always doing something spectacular, but I definitely admire good outfielders across the league. Like I, I feel like playing good defense in the, especially in the outfield is not as relevant. The, or how do I say you don't see it just because guys, you know, who can hit really well, are finding themselves playing left and right field. Rightfully so, right? They can hit, but they don't take defense. That like Defense was never their first priority. Right. So when you come across good defenders, I, I respect it. I admire it. I know how hard guys are working to, to be good out there because that's, that's who I am as a player, and that's how I have – created more opportunity for myself as a major league baseball player is because of the pride that I put into being the best outfielder that I can be. So when I see other guys who put it all together and are good defensively, that's impressive. Can you tell us about your glove? Yeah. So I wear a Wilson A2000. The model, I don't know the model specifically. It's 1275. I've got my favorite Bible verse on there, Isaiah 4110, that I've had on there for years. And I switch it up. The the color schemes, they don't, not just what looks cool. But I will say, did you see the story with uh, little Chloe, the girl who's yep. battling cancer? So Wilson was gracious enough to allow her to customize her own glove, right? And I'm getting the same exact glove, but in my model. So You'll you'll see me rocking a new glo- a new color scheme here dedicated to you know Chloe. She she customized it, so that'll be cool. And just to articulate for people that didn't see it, this is a two-time cancer survivor, a young girl who was uh, being interviewed on the Rays broadcast while you were at bat and you hit a home run. One of the more touching things I think that you will see in baseball, just for those yeah. that are unfamiliar with it. So I was watching something last night and it got me wondering, it was the post-series celebration raise Yankees. And I was wondering what you would tell a kid, since we're talking about kids, I want to be able to dance like Brett Phillips. <laughs> oh, well, hey, keep dreaming, kids. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Dancing, having fun. It's, it's who I am. It's, it's a part of my life. Obviously, there's a level of professionalism. There's a level of respect that I, I will never cross. When I play, I play 100%. I respect the game. I respect my opponents. I respect my teammates. So with that being said, when I have an opportunity to dance and have fun and enjoy myself, I'm going to take 100% advantage of that. Because when my career is also, this is such a small window of opportunity. When my career is said and done, I don't want to have any regrets saying, man, I wish I would have enjoyed myself more. You know, I let the, you know, anxiety and fear and pressure uh, rule my career. So for me, uh, I've accepted that I'm, I'm a dork and I enjoy to have fun. And this, what you see is what you get. This is who I am. And uh, unapologetically about it. This, you know, this is what it is. <laughs> I would make a case, too, that if you're a good dancer, that you're probably a good fielder because of the footwork <laughs> involved, right? Um, That's but, good. <laughs> right? I love what, it. What, what would you say to a kid who says, I want to play defense like Rick Phillips? So I, I would encourage a kid who wants to play defense like myself, if, you know, whatever position it is that you enjoy to play, dedicate a lot of your time to becoming the best 
at that position that you can be. For me, I think I was 12 when I made the conscious decision that outfield was my main position. And from there, I spent all my time and practice at home just getting better, looking at other players, you know, in, in, in professional baseball, how, how they played, uh, Ichiro, you know, guys who I respect and are the best at that, at the top level, just continue to find ways to be better in your game. Two more questions here. One is, I know you talk all the time, baseball is fun. It's your brand. Uh, it's something that you're certainly promoting very actively. Uh, sometimes you have to laugh at yourself. I've heard a few stories where you have laughed at yourself, wrong jerseys, times you weren't paying attention on the field. You have a laugh at yourself defense moment? Yeah, so my my debut, actually, I don't know if you saw this, but we're playing in Milwaukee. We're playing San Francisco. I experienced almost every emotion you could in a, in a baseball game in my debut. Got my first hit. I threw out Bernard Spann on him trying to, to extend a double. I struck out and I made an error. And it's been the worst error of my career to date. You can go look at it. It was a fly ball to right center. I couldn't hear. Domingo Santana was camped under it. I'm running over. I had no idea that he was there and I, I felt his presence and I called him off. I shouldn't have, but you live to learn and the ball hits off my glove and boom, just, just like so embarrassing, <laughs> but it, it happens, right? You, you know, if you haven't experienced that, you haven't played long enough and it's taking experience like that and growing from them, not letting, you know, not beating yourself up. But I vividly remember being very embarrassed of dropping a routine fly ball. <laughs> all right. And we'd be remiss. We typically do uh, like all defense questions and then one hitting question. And we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you about something specific related to your most famous at bat 2020 World Series. And I think if you're watching these games on Apple TV, they now put the hit probability in the lower right hand corner and they say the guy's got a 15, 20 percent hit probability. And I'm thinking when you come up against Kenley Jansen, that although statistically the hit probability is probably going to be listed something pretty low that what would you think well i was going to say in the 10 percent range but okay. i feel like that's a little harsh i but, love it i love it no okay so but but i think there's something there that you can't necessarily capture with the idea of you being essentially in that moment the pest hitter and essentially be, that being the approach that you're coming coming to the plate with going up against a guy where you're essentially transferring the pressure from yourself to him. And I'm curious if you can walk us through the idea of trying to transfer the pressure from the batter to the pitcher. Wow, that's a great question. You know, the circumstances leading up to that at bat, I hadn't had a, a hit for a month, right? I hadn't had an at bat for two weeks. I wasn't even really supposed to get an at-bat in the World Series. I was on the roster to play defense and, and pinch run with the extended roster. Well, we had like 28 guys. So walking up to the plate, like you said, like there was zero expectation for Brett Phillips to help the team win just because everyone knows how hard this game is. And I, I just felt a sense of confidence and you know, calmness walking up to the plate that I really had never felt before. And in my head, I knew something good was going to happen, as weird as that sounds, just because of how good and confident I felt in the box. I was seeing the ball really well. If you look at that at bat, Kenley paints two pitches for strikes that I thought were balls. And if you look, they were pretty close. I think they still were balls, but that's beside the point. And then getting to two strikes – I was just trying to put the ball in play. And after the ball left my bat and I saw I, you know, had a base hit, I'm going to be completely honest. I, w I shocked myself. I was like, wow, I, I just made contact. Like I, did, I just, I just put the ball in play. <laughs> and then you see what happens with the two errors on the play. Uh, just crazy, really cool part of my career and history to, to have that under, you know, my name is what an honor, what a blessing, super thankful. It propelled my career in a very positive way, mentally, physically, emotionally, what I experienced from that moment, even though we didn't win the World Series, has helped me become not only a, 
a better baseball player, but a, a better person. And, and I say that with a, with a sense of humility, just because I was known as like the, the clown, like the funny guy with the funny laugh before that, who could play good defense. Like that's what I was known for. And then you bridge the gap with a really cool moment. It's, it, it, it project, it propelled my career in a positive direction. So thank you for asking about that. Super cool. So, so, so cool to be a part of. Baseball is fun on Instagram. Baseball is fun underscore on Twitter. Baseball is fun 35.com. Lots of things to remember Brett Phillips for that. Probably the most important, but certainly the walk off in the world series, the defensive run saved the amazing numbers there. Brett, thanks for joining us. Baseball is fun indeed. Thank you for having me, Mark. I appreciate it. And we welcome in Ryan Spielborgs from MLB Network Radio and Colorado Rockies TV broadcast for Root Sports. Uh, Ryan, the former Colorado Rocky, of course. First thing I want to ask, you're in the one offensive environment right now that is at least something close to, shall we say, normal. What's it like for a player in the current baseball offensive environment? It looks hard. <laughs> I mean, like it looks really, really hard. Um, we've been tracking now for 10 years. We have 10 years of data that shows just how important shifts are in, in suppressing either runs or hits. And not only that, we're seeing, you know, optimization of bullpens and matchups. You're, you're hearing of pockets, right? Uh, pitchers, I, I think, are far ahead of hitters as far as technology is concerned when it comes to how they're, how they're baseball spinning. So they have a better grasp of what their pitches do, what it can do to a hitter. Um, I mean, for example, Brett Strom uh, has talked about this perceived velocity thing for now multiple years where he can, you know, fastball inside at 88 feels like it's 92. A fastball, you know, middle in is going to feel faster than a fastball uh, down and away. So, you know, like to me, an 88 mile an hour fastball away is going to feel slower. It gives me more reaction time. I have much more margin for error to keep my barrel uh, in the strike zone. And so not only are we getting these type of concepts and philosophies, you're getting the execution of it. Uh, we know that, you know, secondary pitches are being thrown more than fastball. We know fastball velocities are at an all time high. So you have all of these variables that are telling you hitting is really freaking hard. <laughs> and now you have a baseball that I think is traveling a, a certain percentage less. I also know it's about time that every major league franchise has a humidor. So at least he can get a, a baseball standard, which I think is really important. All these things add up. They all add up to, you know, the general climate of hitting where we're all trying to say, like, just put the ball in play, you know, just hit behind the shift. <laughs> you know, like, it's not that hard. Just make contact. I was like, it's, it, it really isn't that simple. And, when I watch major league hitters and understanding the grind and understanding the dynamic of a season, uh, watching it, I realize like from my position, which a lot of times you'll hear former players in the broadcast chair that was like, you know, it's not that hard. No, it is the hardest I've ever seen it. I think, I don't think it's going to get any easier. Even if we consider making some wholesale changes, you want to change shifting. I don't think that solves a lot of the fundamental fundamental flaws with hitting right now, which is pitchers are ahead of the hitter. If you can find some technology that puts the hitter ahead of the pitcher, I might feel a little bit more confident in saying that, but I don't see a breakthrough technology-wise or stat-wise that is going to give a hitter more time to see a pitch at 98 miles an hour. It, you don't create more time. It's less than three-tenths of a second to react to 95, 96, 97. So until velocities go down, there is nothing a hitter can do to buy more time. There's nothing. So I don't I, I don't know how it's gonna I don't know what's gonna have to have to happen. <laughs> that actually sounds pretty discouraging. Let's let's talk something a little more positive. The dominance of the National League West, which a division that you're certainly familiar with, both as a former player and now as a current broadcaster. Uh, as of the other day, uh, 20-something games over 500 so far, playing very well against uh, outside the division. What are a couple of things that have made an impression on you from that division through a month? I, I think that starting from the top, 
I think we have some of the most brilliant front offices in the National League West. I, I really do. I, I think I look at the Giants and the Dodgers as kind of being this gold standard. You, you do have a Maverick in San Diego with A.J. Preller. Um, and, you know, Arizona and Colorado are certainly doing things in their, in their own regard. But when it comes to looking at, at how the Giants operate and how the Dodgers have operated, uh, and and understanding that they're not just spending money to spend money. They are developing players, they're using technology, they're using biomechanics, they're using every possible um, tool in, in the tool belt for them to get a, an advantage. And I, and I think it starts there. I, I think it, it has to start there, is recognizing not only is the front office forward-thinking, they're also using coaching staffs that are forward thinking. They are they are considering the athlete. They are talking about load management, even though it's, it could be a dirty word if you're an NBA fan. Uh, you're 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 considering it at the major league level. They're understanding the amount of time it takes to get a reliever warmed up, how many pitches that takes. Why is that important? Because if a guy takes six pitches to warm up in the bullpen and he's able to optimize his spin when he gets on the mound because he's not throwing 25 pitches to warm up. He realizes that he's at his best between, you know, pitches 12 through 25. And that's where he gets the, the greatest result because they've measured it. That's what you're seeing. And for some other guys, like, for example, take that same example. Mark, you, you, you require eight pitches to warm up. I require 35. They know that Spilly requires 35 to get to his optimized level. And so they, they use that. They use that data. And. Now you start putting it into players and the skill sets that you have, you know, like there's elite players there. Carlos Rodon, if, if you like any of the numbers that are out there, I, I like one of the new ones that have caught on Baseball Savant. It's a swing and take leaderboard. I'm not sure if yep. you're aware of this one. I like this one because it's basically showing uh, the command of the strike zone from a pitching stand, standpoint and, same, and vice versa. You can look at it from a hitter standpoint. And Rodon's number one in Major League Baseball. You think that's that's just happen chance? You think like they just stumbled upon this? <laughs> so I, I I think when you when you look at the National League West and recognize that yes, there are finances involved, but there's a front office, there's coaching staff, and now the players are taking the data and they're driving it. That is the separator for me. Uh, and they also, I mean, like there's another aspect is they play in in pretty hitter. I would say like negative zones, like Dodger Stadium's not a great place to hit consistently. San Diego's not a great place to hit consistently. San Francisco certainly not. Uh, so it kind of adds to the pitching element. So I, I believe that they'll always have that advantage um, in those three specific ballparks to pitch well, uh, and then you can try to use your offense to try to you know club somebody. But uh, to me, the National League West is is the gold standard as far as where I see the, our most brilliant thinkers in our sport. Management without necessarily being over-management. All right, uh, hitter, pitcher, and then if you've got one, a fielder that have surprised or impressed you in the first month. Hitting hitters, I mean, this one is probably not going to you know, be too outlandish, but Mike Trout continues to impress me because he was coming off of a pretty significant injury, right? Like there is a thought that he might have torn his Achilles. And to go in this offseason, uh, you know, considering that he was he basically had 170 at bats last year and he was being better than Mike Trout. And then to go through that offseason and then come back. And if you're looking at his strikeout rate or his walk percentages or his hard hit percentages. Like we're talking Mike Trout has gotten better, which to me, I I didn't know what to expect from him. I, I didn't know what I was going to see. And the fact that we're seeing like a peak version at an older age after an injury, I, I don't know how to explain it, right? Like, I don't know how to, as a 30 year old in a game that's evolved, he's evolved ahead of it. And I don't know how to pinpoint that. I don't know. There's, there's no real reason other than his skill set is so much better than everybody's. Um, so Trout, Trout to me has just been, <laughs> he's, <laughs> you, you have to stop and smell the roses or the trout or the fish, like whatever. You got to recognize that this guy is going to go down as one of the greatest players we've ever witnessed. Um, so I like that. 
I already mentioned Carlos Rodon. I think that one to me is another one that really stands out. Here's somebody that uh, at the end of last year, there was a lot of concerns about health and whether he could, you know, go out there and, and be a, a high free agent. Um, the Giants got him pennies on the dollar for what, what the output has been so far. Uh, I know some of the key free agents that we've seen, right? Max Scherzer's pitched brilliantly. Verlander's Verlander, which is insane to me as well, coming off Tommy John. Uh, Kevin Gossman's gotten better, uh, and that's outside of San Francisco, right? He's gone to Toronto and he's carried forward. Um, but to me, I think the, the biggest one is Carlos Rodon, um, just because there was, a, there was a question mark on it. The other one, too, and, and I love this kid because I, I have some connections to Seattle. It's Logan Gilbert. Um, Logan Gilbert, you know, they joke around he's a baby giraffe, but Tom Murphy, who's, who's, a, who's a catcher there in uh, Seattle, uh, he was a long time with the Rockies, and he was like, Spilly, Logan Gilbert has the best fastball I've ever seen. And I'm like, what? And he goes, <laughs> I'm t- he's like, I'm telling you, he has the best fastball I've ever seen. There's carry, there's um, deception, there's extension, there's all these these indicators that are telling you, like, even if it's 93 to 95, it's on you like it's 102. And it's also played out that way. Logan Gilbert uh, has had as good of a month in, in Major League Baseball pitching-wise that anybody's had, but nobody's going to talk about it because, uh, you know, like, who talks about Seattle baseball until it's September? So that's, that's why you're that, here. <laughs> well, and that's those would be the guys that, that have stood out the most to me. I think defensively, so organizationally, I think I think in general we're watching defenders play different, right? Like the Chicago Cubs are are using a four man outfield. Right? We're we're watching teams going a little bit outside of the box, which I do appreciate. I think it also reflects back to what we originally talked about, which was the game has evolved to where shifting is is designed to take away hits, and I think a lot of teams that are starting to absorb the data that's out there. And, and really kind of put those players in positions. It's not like every, I feel like everybody's basically getting the same amount of information now. It's just how do you use it or how can you, how can you position certain players in a, in a better light? And, and I've seen the Chicago Cubs. Cubs have been fascinating to me and I don't know where they rank on this one. But in general, like I'm watching more and more teams do things. And, and I think last night we saw a four-man outfield with the Texas Rangers. Like every organization is is making it harder to hit, but it's also putting defenders in places that are designed for them to make outs and make plays. And you know, as a defender, playing that you know, like I like being in center field, so I I would like to think that I could cover my gaps, right? Like my my left center, right center gap. And now that you can show me that, hey, like I can position you here, I can position you deeper, or I can position you shallow, and it's still plays to your skill set, and you're going to make some different plays than you have before. I would be really excited uh, about the the prospect of playing defense in 2022. So it's not so much a specific one player; it's the idea of it as a whole that has really impressed you in the yes. first month of the season. Yes. And Babips are down, which is, I think, to what you're getting to in the Formula outfields increasing and the Blue Jays and the Braves shifting like crazy uh, in particular. All right, two more. Um, who's the smartest player in baseball, baseball smarts right now? Alan's really subjective. I don't know how to look it up. Uh, <laughs> I'm not asking you to. I'm asking you to give me your, I, your take. I mean, I, I think smarts in baseball, I think the, the best way to kind of see it is if you're a position player, it's looking at base running, it's understanding, you know, situationally where you're throwing the baseball if you're if you're an outfielder if you're hitting the cutoff if you're throwing behind a runner um one guy that i love watching play and i think it kind of stood out last weekend was juan soto juan Juan soto continues to play such a high level of baseball um you know his at bats his on base percentage and then if you if you're watching him base run his secondary leads uh he went on a wild pitch which you know, there's a runner at third. He's at first. There's a wild pitch, and he goes from first to third, um, while the Giants are arguing. Like that's baseball IQ stuff. That that is understanding the game. The game's unfolding, and you're reacting to it ahead of it. Like those things you'll never see in a box score. 
You don't look at it like a secondary lead, getting an extra two feet, um, because now you're able to score on a base hit to right, and it's a bang-bang play at home plate, and you're, you're sliding in just ahead of the tag. Like Those things really do matter, even your routes through uh, rounding the bases. like That's technique and baseball IQ. So just based on what I've seen so far, I'll throw Juan Soto as, as the smartest player in our sport. Um, but it, it is really hard to to go like, it's this and this yep. and this, because they're just, we don't have, we don't have check marks for like, oh, first to third. Like we know we, guys attempt good first to third, but a ball in the dirt first to third while people are arguing. Where's that metric? Where Like you just don't have it. So if we're watching for one thing in May to close here, what's that one thing? I would say take a look at home run rates uh, in general. Uh, that Those, I believe, are going to go up. The weather's been kind of brutal in April and early May. Uh, usually, we also know with, with the rosters being at 28, now it drops down to 26. Some of those bench spots will, will, will be a little bit tighter, so it means less players uh, that don't normally play every day are going to get a chance to play, which usually makes for better hitting. I also feel like once you get through the first month of the season, it's always a fake month uh, that you get into these guys with the routines and seeing live pitching more and more um, that some of the home run percentages will go up as much as I, I do think the ball has something to do with it. And the humid humidor has something to do with it. I, I think that abbreviated spring training and getting guys warmed up uh, with the routine of baseball, those, those home run percentages should, should climb pretty quick. Abbreviated spring training and then asking guys to try and hit 98. Uh, not a good combination. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> Ryan Spielborgs, MLB Network Radio, Roots Words, Colorado Rockies broadcaster. Thank you for joining us. You got it, Mark. And to close the show, we heard from uh, Brett Phillips. We heard from Ryan Spielborgs. Now we hear from the VP of Baseball at Sports Info Solutions, Bobby Scales. And what we wanted to do in this segment was, I guess, dig a little deeper, as we like to say at Sports Info Solutions. And there are a couple of things that came up. So one that came up, we were talking about balls up the middle Mm -hmm. and infielders getting outs on balls up the middle. This Mm -hmm. year, infielders are getting outs more than 60% of the time on balls up the middle. 10 years ago, that was about 30, 35%. Completely different game now, completely different fielding. But you pointed out to us, completely different from a coaching base running perspective. So I was hoping you could explain what you meant by that. Yeah, Mark, no question about it. I, I think that the, the biggest thing you have to understand, so when you're coaching base runners, right, the first thing, you get to first base, and, you, and I'm sure a lot of our, our listeners will probably wonder, you know, when, what, are the, what is the first base coach telling you? Well, he's he's reminding you of things that you learned when you were in Little League. Okay, how many outs are there? What is the game situation? Is it early? Is it late? Does the pitcher have a great pickoff move? Or does the catcher like to throw back, uh, you know, or whatever? And so there's a checklist that you go through when you're, on any base in any situation, it has to happen between every pitch. And really and truly now you have to have such a focus on where the infielders are. And it's not just per batter. I mean, we know there's a lot of teams that love to shift in different counts. You'll see guys flip positions in a two, one count versus a one, two count, three, one count. They may move around and do different things. So the first thing you have to do is, as a, as a instructor really is make sure that you set up a scenario when you're practicing your base running, that you have, you know, fielders. And if you're, you know, if you're on a team that doesn't have a lot of numbers or whatever, or if you're, you know, in a situation where you're down guys and you can't put a whole team out there. I mean, I've put screens out there. I've put cones out there. Let's imagine that you're hitting in front of Kyle Schwarber. More than likely, you're going to be in a full shift. You're going to have somebody in the triangle out in short right field. So you need to put a player or screen or or what have you in that location. So that if, if a ball's hit there, that you're, you know, when you're practicing running at first base, or even if you're at second base or what have you, you understand where those players are. So that, so it doesn't take you by surprise when someone catches a line driver or, or when someone, you know, uh, fields the ball. You're like, oh my God, what's he doing there? No, that's where he's going to be. Why? Because that's where so-and-so hits the baseball. It makes sense. And, and you know, I'm not going to get into the shift, anti-shift conversation. All I'm going to say is if I knew a guy's going to hit the ball there, that's where I'm going to go. And so, you know, as a, as a base running instructor, as a, as a coach, you want to set up scenarios that are going to mirror what happens in the game. Know your fielder, know your batter, essentially, is what you're asking. 100%. So with regards to the new shifting rules that are probably coming to Major League Baseball next year, one thing that the R&D team at uh, SIS got into a discussion about was the idea of, are you going to see sprinting as, as the ball's being pitched? Are you going to see the shortstop who's probably playing a step or two off of second base? Is he suddenly going to sprint 
all the way across as the pitch is being thrown. And you were talking about the idea that the rules got to be kind of locked down in terms of what's allowed, what's not allowed. I guess, what what have you seen with that? And I know that you've heard the teams are already practicing for this. Yeah, I mean, you have, there's, you'd be foolish not to at least be experimenting with something. And how teams do that depends on the organization a lot of times. You know, you'll have some teams that will totally dedicate certain themes or certain things they want to investigate. So, for instance, I know there's a couple teams a couple years ago in, in the Florida State League with the A-ball clubs that were, you know, doing certain things with their infielders for the specific purpose of trying to investigate what that looks like over the course of a full season without sacrificing games at the major league level, which you're not going to do, right? So you're like, okay, why are they doing this? It's like, the, the, it's an organizational mandate. They're going to practice this. They're going to they're going to play it this way. And they just want to see what it's going to, you know, over how it plays out over the course of time. I, I think that there's things that, you know, you see, you'll see in instructional league. Teams aren't doing instructional league quite like they used to, but in the games they have, they'll, there'll be things that come down as directives from up top say, hey, listen, we really want you guys to practice that because we want to see it. And they'll put it on tape and they'll send it around and they'll analyze it and see what it looks like. Now, obviously, you're not doing it with major league quality caliber players, but you're still getting a look at what it looks like to do it in a game situation and or practice it. So, uh, you know, in the chat that we were a part of this this week uh, with our R&D staff, I think uh, – you know, uh, one of the things I said is it's going to look like, you know, if anybody who's played basketball, even at the lowest levels, you know that an offensive player with the ball can go in many different directions and you don't want to get your feet crossed up. One thing that you may see is you may see as the ball is in flight, you may see a shortstop or a second baseman or a player who's who's supposed to start on one side of the bag or the other, take some shuffle steps towards the place where they want to be as the ball is in flight. Now, I would imagine the people who run uh, Major League Baseball are not dumb. There'll probably be some legislation against that or some some more concrete rules as to what you can and cannot do. So it, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. But there's no question there's teams that have already already practiced things of this nature and and trying to get a head start on 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 how to put that into play. We've talked about the Giants as a forward-thinking organization a couple of times in a couple of different ways and in a couple of different forums within our company. The Giants this season are doing what we call partial shifting. And that's essentially something that will be allowed next year, which is you're playing two guys a little bit differently, but you're not necessarily playing three guys on one side. You're not necessarily playing a guy in the outfield. The Giants are doing that the most of any team in baseball, 47%. So nearly half of hitters this season facing the Giants have faced what we would not call a full shift. We have three guys on one side but they face the partial shift. They've been active in doing that. The Braves are very active in doing that. Coached by Ron Washington talks about that. The Reds have been very active in doing that. So I, I feel like minor league level, you're getting it with, with what you're talking about. But at the major league level, almost subtly, somewhat that that's being done with, with certain teams where they're saying, we, we don't necessarily always have to full shift. We can partial shift and still get uh, still be a highly effective defense. No doubt. I think they're doing what makes sense for their for their personnel and what yep. they see as, you know, giving them an advantage to field the baseball. I want this segment typically to be essentially what we just did, kind of inside the game, inside really deep inside baseball kind of stuff. But uh, your personal story, which we talked about on the last episode of this podcast, comes into play in Major League Baseball a few times a year because you get these guys that are the 30-year-old rookies that find their way to the major leagues. One example of that, Jason Krizan made his major league debut with the San Francisco Giants. He's 32, and if I'm not mistaken, he had something like 4,000 minor league plate appearances. I'm curious what it's like for you when you see these guys and if you've got a, a particular favorite one from your past. Well, first of all, any player who gets to the, to, to the big leagues after 30 is my new favorite player in the show, so... My man, stay in the show as long as you can because uh, you'll be my favorite player. It's an elite class of human. It's an elite club. Did you, did you have to? <laughs> I'm kidding. But no, I, I genuinely, genuinely, I'm happy for him. I, I, I know the struggle. I was 31 and 31 and a half when I got there. And you're, you're honestly, really and truly, you're most happy for the families because this isn't like a 25 year old. It's all important to everybody. Everybody's journey is different. But to hang in there as long as, as we did, that's different. That's different levels of of support and 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 help. So, kudos to him. But there's a guy uh, when I was in Philadelphia in 2006. We had there's a catcher a guy named Chris Coast, and Coasty was 32 or three. I can't remember, but he was up there too. 
you know, he had, he had played in every league in, in the world. I mean, indie ball a couple of times. I think he played in Mexico, Dominican, Puerto Rico, Venezuela. I think he was, you know, he, he had like four or five straight years where he played winter ball. It was ridiculous. I mean, loads of, of, of triple a time like myself he played catcher first base dh outfield he was just kind of a jack of all trades and he got his call up to, to to philadelphia that same season in 2006 so that was that was a pretty cool story his story was was similar to mine he had a he had a he went up for a guy they didn't know if he was going to be off the roster or on the roster they weren't sure but they wanted to have him in the building just in case. And, and sure enough, he got activated that day. And I think, I feel like, I can't remember exactly, but I feel like contributed like that night too, like right away is it in pinch, pinch hitting or something, but unbelievable dude, great dude, great teammate. And uh, was really happy for him. And he, in Coasty stayed for a while too. I think he got like a year and some change out of it. Maybe, maybe he got four. Did he really, he get up with yeah. four. Wow. Yeah. That's, he, that's impressive. He between so, the Phillies and the Astros. So, all right. So Chris Coast is, is yeah. kind of like your guy, Jason Krizian, one for eight, yeah. two walks with the Giants. Yeah. And he got in Coasty. I mean, and he's like from, I want to say North Dakota too. So yep. that's another, it's another baseball gem that you can't just get anywhere. Oh, and Chris Coast, four years playing indie ball in North Dakota, in addition to being, uh, was it four? Dakotas. Okay. I knew, I knew it was a couple, I knew it was a couple stints, but this guy was, he was, he was unbelievable. A- he's some kind of funny too, man. Holy cow. We'll get more baseball stories from Bobby Scales. We'll go deep inside the game with him as well. And Bobby, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure, Mark. And this wraps up this episode. For Brett Phillips, Ryan Spielborgs, Bobby Scales, and our producer, Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for listening to the SIS Baseball Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at Mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.